Well, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We'll be looking at many different parts of God's Word today, but we will often be coming back to the pastoral epistles. So that's a good place to open to. Last week, we asked a very important question as a part of our message. Last week, our message was on the subject of Christianity and liberalism, the famous book by J. Gresham Machen from 100 years ago, published in 1923. And my goal in bringing that book to your attention, bringing something out of the past into the present, into your awareness, was so that you might be able to see that the more things change, the more they stay the same. And the question that we asked last week as we utilized Machen's book, who gets to define what Christianity is? Who gets to decide what Christianity is? So many different versions of Christianity out there. Is there such a thing as a genuine version? Is there such a thing as an objective version of Christianity? Or does everybody get to decide what they want Christianity to be? Well, as we looked into Machen's book last week, and he undertook to show what Christianity is by showing what Christianity is not, so we want to come forward into our time, 100 years later, and find out that this question about what is Christianity is still being asked in our time. There's many people in the public eye, many people who are prominent, both in the entertainment industry and also in politics, who claim to be Christians. But they are of a very different sort of Christian than we are. And so, thinking about some of those folks, I think about Bono, lead singer of the band U2, who for a long time is identified as a Christian. But he is a different sort of Christian from what I am. Also, thinking about a younger musician like Taylor Swift, identifies as a Christian, but is very progressive in a lot of her views on morality. When you think of older politicians like Nancy Pelosi or Joe Biden, who say that they are Christians, and in the 20th century in which they grew up, they were of the liberal sort, the kind of Christian that we were talking about last week when J. Gresham Machen showed that liberalism is not Christianity. But as time goes by, the liberal branch of the church kind of moves into the progressivism of the 21st century and people just go with the flow. And so... Who gets to decide what Christianity is? Which version of Christianity is the right one? Or is it even a correct question to ask? Can you ask which version of Christianity is the right one? You know, I often thought of the Catholic Church as being a church that would stand with the evangelical church on issues of morality. And it seemed like in the 20th century that the Catholic Church did do that. But now in the 21st century, we've got a pope who does not seem to be on the same page as traditional Catholicism when it comes to moral issues. And progressivism is a part now of the Catholic Church at the highest level, from the cardinals to the pope. And so this morning, I do want to talk about what is Christianity. And in particular, I want to show what Christianity is in contrast to what it is not, Not the modernism, the liberalism, the theological liberalism of the 20th century, but the postmodernism and the progressivism of the 21st century. That's going to be our goal today, is to show that progressivism is not Christianity. Now, 
I brought out a great quote here from 1,600 years ago when the theologian Augustine was coming out of a heretical group of Christians, so-called the Manichaeans. He told Faustus, his teacher of the Manichaeans, that he really should be more honest. And he said, you ought to say plainly that you do not believe the gospel of Christ. For to believe what you please and not to believe what you please is to believe yourselves and not the gospel. So once again, the more things change, the more they stay the same. 1st century, 5th century, 20th century, 21st century. There's always those who want to redefine what Christianity is for their time, for their place, to suit their thinking, to suit their culture. So what has happened in the last 100 years since theological liberalism overtook the Protestant church? Well, here's what I think has happened. Secularism has continued to grow, which is a practical atheism. The bulk of the Protestant churches did not heed Machen's warnings, but committed suicide spiritually by compromising with the irreconcilable philosophy of naturalism. That is, philosophical materialism, that the physical world is all there is, all there was, or ever will be. Now, of course, that is completely unchristian, but they came up with a compromised Christian version of that that ended up killing the spirituality of the Protestant mainline churches in the 20th century. But in the 21st century, Modernism, this theological liberalism that is in the church and the modernism that is in the culture, has given ground, has yielded to postmodernism. Postmodernism is now the dominant cultural movement, not modernism. And really this change has just taken place quite recently. In the last 20 years, this last generation has reached that point where postmodernist thinking was in the majority, gained the dominance in our culture. And... The evangelical church, no surprise, at the end of the 20th century and now here at the beginning of the 21st century, has fallen for it once again. This time, not falling to modernism, but falling to postmodernism, a compromise with the philosophy that's in the world that changes the very essence of Christianity into something that is, in fact, not Christian. That's my thesis for today. Now, before we jump in, I want you to be mindful of 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. I told you to open your Bibles to the pastoral epistles. And here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, you've got a key verse identifying what is the church. That according to the apostles of Jesus Christ, according to the genuine Christianity that goes back to the very beginning of the church with Jesus Christ and his disciples, his apostles and his prophets, the church is defined for us as the family of God, the household of God. That's an amazing privilege. I thank God every Sunday morning when I pull up into the parking lot that God has made me a part of his family. He's made me a part of his household. And the household of God, it has a purpose in the world. It is the church of the living God, the God who exists, the God who is real, the God not of the philosophers, the God not of human invention, the God not of false religion and idolatry, the God who created heaven and earth, the living God. We are his congregation. We are the people that he has brought together to be a family of brothers and sisters of the Lord Jesus Christ together. And that institution is the pillar and support of the truth. I want you to get that in your mind here at the beginning and to remember it throughout the whole sermon this morning. What is the church? Who are we? We are the family of God. We are the pillar and support of 
the truth. That word truth is going to become very important as we compare postmodern church to biblical church. Now, the pillar and support of the truth becomes the main enemy of the postmodernist because postmodernism, the main thing that differentiates itself from modernism, is that while postmodernism is also secular, postmodernism is also humanistic, what's different about the postmodernists from the modernists is that the postmodernists don't believe that there is such a thing as objective truth, absolute truth, truth that is outside of ourselves and that we are obligated to acknowledge as truth. But instead, the postmodernist is a moral relativist, and he believes that all of reality, all of our understanding of reality, is a social construct. And that one person's reality is not better or worse than another person's reality. And so when it comes to truth, truth becomes the arch enemy of the relativist, the postmodernist. As Christians have always had cowards in our midst, once again, cowardly Christians have capitulated and compromised in order to conserve their own standing in society. When society comes along and says, there is no truth, Christians find a way to say, okay, let's minimize truth. Let's find a way to fit in with the culture so that we're not persecuted, so that we're not rejected, so that people still like us. I want to be liked. There's nothing wrong with being liked. But for the Christian, we do not have the option of compromising truth in order to be liked in any culture. This warning goes all the way back to the genuine church, the original church. When John wrote to his churches as the apostle of Jesus Christ, he told us, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And what does that mean? What does it mean for us to not love the world or the things in the world? And why is that something that is necessary in order to love the Father? I encourage you to meditate and think about 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. So, today's thesis, progressivism is not Christianity. John chapter 18, verse 37 gives us what it means to be Christ-like. You can jot these verses down, you can take a picture with your phone, however you want to try to remember what I'm throwing out here, because we're going to be hitting a lot of verses. In John 18:37, Jesus himself said, For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness of the truth. And if we are Christians, then we also have been sent with a mission to bear witness to the truth. Whether people want to hear it or whether they don't want to hear it, that is who Jesus Christ is and that is who Christians are. We can't change that. Also, as you're in Timothy, you could look at 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 14. I've been reading through First and Second Timothy all week. The Lord's been bringing these books to my mind as I considered progressivism and Christianity. And there, the command goes to the young pastor, Timothy, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. And so I have my command from the Lord Jesus Christ through the Holy Scriptures to guard what has been entrusted. That's my duty. That's my love for the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a job that I have to do together with the elders of this congregation, together with you. This is something that we all want to do together, but that's why you get messages like this from the pulpit. First and Second Timothy are exactly what the church needs to hear in this cultural moment. 
And you know what? It hasn't changed from the 20th century. All right. And then finally, the elder's job is to be holding firmly the faithful word. I'm looking at you elders. Which is in accordance with the teaching. So that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. So I'm commanded to refute those who contradict. It's not that I like to stir up controversy. It's not that I'm trying to hit hot-button subjects or trying to draw attention to myself. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. The Lord is my witness. So, let's get into it. The outline for this morning. Progressivism is not Christianity. So first thing we have to do is talk a little bit more. I've already mentioned it, but let's get into the details a little bit. What is progressivism. And here we're talking about progressivism as a Christian movement. But progressivism as a Christian movement is influenced by, it is generated by the thinking of the world outside of the church, which is postmodernism, as I have already mentioned. Here's what I want you to get. What modernism was to theological liberalism, so postmodernism is to progressive Christianity. So modernism is what infiltrated the church and corrupted it in the 20th century. Postmodernism is what infiltrates the church and corrupts it in the 21st century. Now, there's nothing wrong with progress. I don't have any problem with the word progressive. It's all a matter of what are you progressing to and how do you measure progress? You see, progress towards a good thing is great. Like it says in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 18, The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. That's a beautiful verse. I love that. That we should be making progress in our Christian life. That we should be becoming more like the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what's called progressive sanctification. And progressive sanctification is a wonderful doctrine. But progress towards a bad thing is not actually progress. That's progress that is falsely called. And so in 2 Timothy 3.13, there's another great verse from the pastoral epistles. Paul warned the pastors. Through Timothy, he's warning all pastors in all churches around the world at all times, evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So this progress in deception, this progress from bad to worse, that's not good progress. Okay, That's actually regress. And so just because we call it progressive, we have to say, well, according to what standard? How do we know if you're progressing? And what are you progressing towards? Very important questions. Now, let's talk a little bit about postmodernism as a secular philosophy so you can understand how the world around us has influenced the church. Postmodernism arose from modernism in the 20th century and before, largely to two main reasons. Historically, two world wars kind of dimmed mankind's hopes that we were going to just find this utopia by following reason and science. Reason and science gave us the atomic bomb. Reason and science gave us weapons of mass destruction and chemical weapons, and it gave us tanks and aircraft carriers and all that, and we just started destroying each other. And so that kind of shook people's faith in reason and science as the pathway forward to utopia. And also, along with those disasters of the 20th century, we also had the philosophical rise of postmodernism because Modernism was built on the premise of naturalism, that the physical world is all there is, all there was, or all there ever will be. But based upon that premise, modernism actually can't hold. They were hoping that modernism would be the outcome of 
naturalism. But as philosophers critiqued the ideas of the modernists and examined them, they found out that, no, actually, if you're going to be a naturalist, you can't be a modernist. You have to be a postmodernist. That is, the modernist thought that there was a way for us to be good without God, that we could use our reason, that we could use science, and that we could develop ethically, morally, scientifically in every way. And that what happens is that's just not true. And the postmodernists discovered that, that if you are going to kill God, as Nietzsche said, well, then you have to get rid of all those things that go along with God, like ethics, a standard objective morality goes out as well. And so historically and philosophy, modernism couldn't hold, and it had to give way to postmodernism. Now, that's the key difference that I want you to focus on. There's a number of differences between the modernists and the postmodernists, but the one I'm going to focus on for us as the church is moral relativism. They're relativists in all areas of knowledge, but especially in this area of ethics, morality. And the heresy of the 21st century, it's not about the miracles in the Bible. You know, churches aren't necessarily arguing over whether or not Jesus bodily rose from the dead. All of those debates are old and tired, and nobody wants to talk about those things anymore. The debates in the church now are, well, what about women's rights? What about LGBTQ issues? What about ethics and the morality of the Old Testament? And all of these issues, it's an ethical question that confronts the church today. It's an ethical heresy that is drawing people away from the faith into this progressive form of Christianity, which is actually not Christian. So, relativism. The modernist, he claimed we can be good without God. But the postmodernist comes along and says, well, goodness is actually a social construct. What do you mean by good? You know, your culture says this is good, that culture says that is good, nobody really knows what's good, so we can just construct and deconstruct our models of what's good according to however our society wants. So what do you mean, good without God? And then the modernist said, the way that we know truth is by science and reason. And the postmodernist comes along and says, well, you know, there is no truth. And if there is, you can't know it or communicate it. So men like Jean-Paul Sartre, in the 20th century, he came up with his own philosophy and he was a part of the existentialist school. And instead of seeking meaning in life from some objective truth that is outside of ourselves, he thought that was impossible. So he thought meaning in life, that it was something that we could just make by an act of our own will. That meaning for my life is whatever I choose to be meaningful. You find a lot of people that think that way. You go out and ask people, what's the meaning of your life? They'll say, well, you know, I choose this to be the meaning of my life, or I choose that to be the meaning of their life. And we just get to choose by the power of our will, not based on any objective reality, but just based upon our own choice. Carl Jaspers came along and he said, meaning in life is found in our experience. He was an existentialist philosopher from Germany and Switzerland. And he said, it's our experience. And when you have the most powerful experience of your life, that's what gives you meaning in your life. And so religious experience became substituted for religious doctrine. See, the modernist was still interested in doctrine, but the postmodernist is not interested in doctrine. He's interested in experience. And so Eastern mysticism, Hinduism, Buddhism, the occult, anywhere where you can have a religious experience becomes a source of meaning for the existentialist, even Christianity. You can go to church and have a religious experience, and that's what's important. That's what gives meaning to your life is the religious experience. 
And you know what? It doesn't even have to be religion. You can find experience and meaningful, powerful experiences and things outside of a religious circle. And so Aldous Huxley, one of his ideas in the 20th century was that drug trips are a way to find meaning, that you have this amazing experience through using drugs and that lifts you up beyond the particulars of everyday life and and you find your meaning through an LSD trip. Well, you see that if you are a philosophical naturalist, Eventually, if you're following the line of thinking, you end up with an amoral view of life. Because morality does not come from molecules. Morality, you go and talk to most people on the street, what's wrong, what's right, how do you know? It's well, it's because society says so. And if people believe that it's because society says so, that something is wrong and something is right, well then that's postmodernism. Postmodernists say, well, whatever society constructs, truth is socially constructed, morality is socially constructed, so society can change its mind, society can change its whim, and whatever they say, whatever the polls say, that's what's right. Because the philosophers recognize that you can't get an ought from an is. Science can tell you what is, but it can't tell you what ought to be. And this is where naturalism dead ends. This is where naturalism destroys ethics. It destroys meaning. It destroys everything that is important in life and just leaves us with a cold, dark, materialistic universe that just by an act of our will, we can create our own meaning, although it's still ultimately meaningless. That's the threat, that's the danger of postmodern philosophy with its naturalistic base that has confronted Western civilization and is destroying Western civilization. Now, my goal in talking about these things is not to talk politics or sociology or economics. We only touch on political, social, economic issues because it impacts our mission of being the pillar in support of the truth. What does it mean to stand for God in this secular and morally upside-down world? So, let's take a look at a few of the dangers of postmodern thinking then. We've talked about what is progressivism. It's a version of Christianity that is based upon the postmodern culture around us. It's an acclamation of Christianity to postmodern philosophy. And we talked about the rise of postmodernism. We talked about the threat of moral relativism. Now let's take a look at the dangers of this relativism. Number one, deconstruction. Deconstruction is not always bad, There are things that should be deconstructed. There are things that mankind creates that are not true, that are false, and we should think critically, we should examine them critically. But there are things that should not be deconstructed. And knowing the difference between what should be deconstructed and what should not be deconstructed is the difference between being a postmodernist and being a Christian. Because a Christian recognizes that this world is created by God. That God is the one who instituted the rules. God is the one who has made the groundwork. They've laid the foundation. He's the one who is the source of the morality. And if you deconstruct what you're not supposed to deconstruct, you end up with chaos and death. And that's where our society is going. Because the postmodernist mindset, it attacks everything critically. It wants to deconstruct everything. And so this deconstruction is a real threat The postmodernist mindset makes a virtue of desecration. Whatever is held sacred, whatever is held valuable, whatever is held in honor, let's destroy it. Let's deconstruct it. And you know what? It's a lot easier to tear something down than it is to build. And the problem with the deconstructionist is that they don't know what they're going to replace what they're tearing down with. 
And they have this insane faith that if we just tear all this stuff down, that, that magically, poof, a better society is going to emerge. And that's not what's going to happen, my friends. It's not what happened in the 20th century when they deconstructed capitalism and the social war that Marx brought to the proletariat. They didn't create a better society. Utopia did not emerge from the ashes of the deconstruction. And it won't emerge in the ashes of the progressive movement either. It's easy to destroy, but it's hard to build. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 19 describes this futility that is in the mind of those who are lost in this world. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. They tear something apart and they don't have anything to put back in its place. They just assume it's all going to work out and then they're stumbling in the darkness and they've destroyed their society, they've destroyed their families, they've destroyed their lives, they've destroyed their bodies and they're just left to, what, blame you, blame God when we were the ones that were trying to stop them from destroying. This is seen in art. If you thought modern art was bad, postmodern art says, hold my beer. You may have heard about the famous banana taped on the wall. It sold for $120,000. It's a game they play. It's not art, it's anti-art. They're making fun of meaning. They're making fun of objective reality. They're making fun of art. When they killed God, they killed philosophy. When they killed philosophy, they killed art. And here we see the death of art in society. And this little game that the postmodernist leaders play to show you that everything that you think is meaningful, everything that you think is valuable is not. That you could work two years and not be able to afford this banana taped to a wall. Because it doesn't matter what you value. It matters what they choose to value. And they choose to value whatever benefits them, whatever helps them. This is dangerous. And popular art is no better. Here you've got the highbrow art. <laughs> but popular art has also been infected by this postmodernism so that the mainstream entertainment that is spoon-fed to us, this creative enterprise, has just become another medium for the message that the elites wish to foist upon the masses. I was watching a, a movie the other day and at the very beginning they had the title screen of the studio that had made it. Which studio is it that has the, the lion head on it? And then up above it's got the Latin, art for art's sake. Well, art for art's sake is coming out of the Protestant Reformation. That the arts blossomed when you have a, a proper view of God who has created us in his image and his likeness and that we create art for God's sake ultimately but that art is not a medium in order to produce some kind of political societal change that benefits us, but instead we do it as an act of worship with the wonderful creation that God has given to us. And art for art's sake has died. See, postmodernism knows they cannot reason their way to a universal ethic. And so they just manipulate emotions. They want you to act in a certain way and they will manipulate you to act in that way. And so you need to beware of the media. The movies, the books, the television. It all has a purpose. To twist your thinking. To make you in the image that they want you to be made into that is going to benefit them. Not only has art died, but science is dying. A hundred years ago, 
Machen asked the question that many people were asking, can Christianity be preserved in a scientific age? People looked at the advances of science and they thought, well, modernism is just going to push Christianity out and that, that we just can't hold on to Christianity in this scientific age and everyone's got their faith in science. Well, as postmodernism has taken over the culture, now the question is, can science survive in a post-Christian age? Can science survive in a post-Christian age? For the scientific endeavor depends upon ethics. Without ethics, science is impossible. But they killed ethics when they killed philosophy, when they killed God. And now you see that science itself is becoming just a tool for manipulation. The scientific endeavor controlled by moneyed interests to get what they want done. Science has become just another medium for the message those seeking greater power utilize. So deconstruction in the arts and in science because of ethical deconstruction, you see that around us. It's the deconstruction of the West. Secondly, you've got social justice. Now, social justice could be also properly termed socialist justice because postmodernism and Marxism are closely connected to one another philosophically. Marxism, as it was in the 20th century and now has evolved into its cultural form in the 21st century, is the outgrowth of the philosophers who brought about the postmodern philosophy. It is the socioeconomic application of the naturalism that destroyed philosophy. And it will destroy any economy that it infects as well. Now, without truth, what is man left to pursue? There is no truth. Truth is a social construct. So then what do you use that social construct of truth to do? Truth has no value in and of itself. Truth is not an end. It's only a means to an end. So what is the end? Power. If mankind does not pursue truth, there's only one thing left for him to pursue, and that is power. The will to power is a threat to justice. And social justice is not justice. It is manipulating people's sense of justice in order to gain power. Did you catch that? Social justice is not justice. It is manipulating people's sense of justice in order to gain power. That's what it is. After meaning is lost, then the next step is to use the sentiments of meaning to manipulate the masses. This is a key insight that Francis Schaeffer had in his book on how should we then live. You can read all about it in the last chapter of how should we then live. And so what does mankind do? Mankind creates systems and narratives and seeks to control the narrative for a power play. Truth is socially constructed, therefore we can deconstruct it and reconstruct it however we like. And how do we like? We like whatever gives us more power. That's what we like. That's what sinful man is. And so the media, it mediates between the masses and the myth it creates. That was a line from a Pray for Rain song about 20 years ago. The media mediates between the masses and the myth it creates. That's the world that we live in. This is a deconstruction of gender that we see taking place in social justice. Now, when we talk about gender issues and social justice issues, a term that gets thrown around a lot is woke. What does woke mean? Well, woke very simply means that you are awake to societal injustice. But what is societal injustice? 
In a postmodern philosophy, the philosophy that has dominated our schools and our academies and our institutions, there is no such thing as justice. It's a social construct. And a social construct can change whenever the people who are pulling the levers of society want it to change. And so what does it mean to be awake to social injustice? It means that you feel whatever they want you to feel is unjust. That's social justice according to postmodernism. But social injustice according to Scripture is that there is an objective standard of what is good and what is right. And we should be awake to the injustices that are in society according to a standard, a standard that doesn't change, a standard that is true, a standard that has been there from the very beginning and will be there when all of the generations have gone. I want you to be awake to societal injustice. I just want you to see injustice the way God sees it and not the way that the masses are manipulated to perceive it. Now, let's talk also about, very briefly, about centrism. Most people, they want to be in the center. They're comfortable in the center. They don't want to be thought too far this way. They don't want to be thought too far that way. They just kind of want to get along with everybody, go along, get along. And so the way that you move society is you move the center. And if you can move the center, then most people will stay in the center. And that's what's been happening in the last 10 years. The center's been moved, moved, moved. They keep pushing, keep pushing, trying to get the center to go in a certain direction so that society moves in that way, like a bunch of sheep. That's what we are. But we are sheep with a good shepherd instead of sheep without a shepherd. And so let's listen to our good shepherd. That's something that the church has done a pretty poor job of. And we look at the world, and we see that the world is always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. And I could go on on that verse for quite a while, but for time's sake, we're going we're gonna to skip all that discussion and keep going here then to part two of our sermon today. Remember, what is the church? We are the pillar and support of the truth. In a world full of the manipulation of lies, well, who's enemy number one? Well, the pillar and support of the truth is enemy number one in a world that is run by liars. Now, sadly, this is true also in the church. As I said, the church has done a pretty poor job of being courageous and standing up for truth in a postmodern relativist society. This book by David Wells, No Place for Truth, was written all the way back in 1994. Thirty years later, the church is not in a better place than it was then. And we weren't in a good place then! I encourage you to read it. David Wells, No Place for Truth. Notice the subtitle. Whatever happened to evangelical theology? Well, I'll tell you what happened to evangelical theology. It became progressive. It became postmodernist. The same way that evangelical theology in the 20th century became modernist. The church is playing the same game and losing the same way. We didn't learn from our mistakes. We're repeating them. Now, let's talk a little bit about the compromises of postmodern Christianity then. Progressive Christianity. And use this to contrast with what is true Christianity. Now, in the 1940s, the late 1940s, a movement arose in the evangelical church called neo-evangelicalism. And neo-evangelicalism started off with some good intentions, but you always got to watch out. Good intentions have unintended consequences. And some of the institutions that took this step off the path on neo-evangelical thinking 
ended up way, way off the path. It evolved eventually into what was known as the emergent church early in the 21st century and now has joined and become a part of the stream of progressive Christianity. This progressive Christianity that we're dealing with in our time, it is a union of the evangelicals from the 20th century, their descendants, their institutions, together with the old mainline liberals that we split from back in the 20th century. We've come full circle. We split over modernism. The evangelicals held on to the faith, but then the children of the evangelicals and the grandchildren of the evangelicals are leaving the faith, and then postmodernism takes over everything, and we all come back together as progressive Christians. That's what is taking place with this compromise. And you say, well, Timothy, are you making this up? No. Wikipedia, not a Christian source. This is what they say about progressive Christianity. Progressive Christianity represents a postmodern theological approach. Oh, well, that was exactly the same conclusion I came to. Now, when one person and another person who are completely opposite sides come to the same conclusion, that might be correct. It's not necessarily synonymous with progressive politics, although I would say there's a lot of overlap. Notice what it says. It is a post-liberal theological movement within Christianity. So the liberalism of the 20th century, now we've got the, what movement was after that. It's this progressive Christianity. And it says this. Progressive Christianity, as described by its adherents, this isn't me as the critic, this is the adherents, is characterized by a willingness to question tradition, acceptance of human diversity, a strong emphasis on social justice, caring for the oppressed, and environmental stewardship of the earth. It draws influence from multiple theological streams, including evangelicalism. I say it, they say it, it's probably true. It also draws from liberal Christianity, neo-orthodoxy, pragmatism, postmodern theology, progressive Christian reconstructionism, and liberation theology. The concerns of feminism are also a major influence on the movement. Although progressive Christianity and liberal Christianity are often used synonymously, the two movements are distinct despite much overlap. And I agree. They are distinct, but they do have a lot of overlap. That's why I tried to lay out for you the key difference between the postmodernist and the modernist, and that moral relativism. And, you know, we can still find allies in our culture on objective truth from those old modernists. There's still a few modernists floating around who aren't Christians, and they believe in objective truth, they believe in ethics, they believe in reason, they believe in science, and they're actually trying to live that out, but the culture is completely turned against them. They were the dominant culture in the 20th century, and now they're the outcasts. It's like, well, welcome to the party. We've been here the whole time. Now, what are the marks of this progressive Christianity? Well, I laid out some that I think are important for us to consider, notwithstanding what Wikipedia just said. Number one, progressive Christianity, postmodern Christianity, another way of describing it, is man-centered. Now, this was a problem with modernism in the 20th century, but again, whatever was bad with modernism is like it's supercharged bad with the postmodernists. If, as Machen said, Christianity is earnestly theistic. I love that. Hear that. Christianity is earnestly theistic. We're not just theistic in name, but we are powerfully passionate about having God as the center. Everything is about God. Earnest in our theism. He said, liberalism is at best, but half-heartedly so. So liberalism is half-heartedly God-centered, and it's half-heartedly man-centered. 
Well, postmodernism, maybe a quarter. Postmodern Christianity, this progressive Christianity, if modernism was half-hearted, they're quarter-hearted in their theism. They're mostly humanist. And Machen said, man exists for the sake of God. But in the liberal church, in practice, if not in theory, God exists for the sake of man. You go around and you go to most progressive churches, and God exists for the sake of man. Man does not exist for the sake of God. Just listen to a preacher and say, does that preacher sound like man exists for the sake of God or that God exists for the sake of man? And that's a good measure mark for determining whether or not someone is preaching the Bible or whether someone is preaching progressive Christianity. See, progressivism changes with the times. But, in contrast, Psalm 119, verse 89 says, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. God's word doesn't change. The faith was once for all delivered to the saints. It doesn't matter how the culture changes. God has never changed his mind on an ethical issue ever, before the world was made, till now, and forevermore. God is who he is. Goodness is goodness. Evil is evil. It doesn't change. But the progressive church is willing to change whenever the culture says we need to. It's very man-centered in that way. It's also very man-centered in how they read the Bible. Now, I could tell you something about Karl Barth and his theological existentialism that was written about in the early part of the 20th century that's now dominant in our culture. The neo-evangelicals fell in love with Karl Barth and his influence has been felt. And listen to what Wikipedia says is the existentialist way, which is also a progressive Christian way, of reading the Bible. An existentialist reading of the Bible would demand that the reader recognize that they are an existing subject studying the words more as a recollection of events. This is in contrast to how we would read it, looking at a collection of truths that are outside the reader. I look at the Bible, I read it, this is truth from God that is objective, it's outside of me. That's not the way the progressive Christian reads the Bible. They're reading the same Bible, they're just not reading it the same way. I'm reading it as a revelation of objective divine truth. But they're reading it as a written account of people's experiences of God that can guide in our experience of God. Wikipedia continues, Such a reader is not obligated to follow the commandments as if an external agent is forcing these commandments upon them. I'm not obligated to obey the commandments. I just read it for the religious experience. And it's as though the Word of God is just a guide for the truth that is within me. You know, and I dare say that sounds like Jesus calling. If the Bible has too many commandments and is too objective and is too hard and you don't like reading it because it's too hard to do an existentialist reading of the Bible, well then just read Jesus Calling instead. And you can have an existentialist experience of God that is nominally Christian. That's not Christianity. Christianity is believing the Word of God. Believing it so much that you obey what is written in the Word of God. That's what it was in the first century. That's what it has been in every century since then. Jesus Christ defined Christianity. And he says, if you love me, obey my commandments. 
He didn't say, if you love me, have a religious experience and attach my name to it. He defines what Christianity is, not the booksellers. All right. Christianity that is progressive and postmodern is also very inclusive. Look for this if you want to know what a postmodern church looks like. There's a poll taken just recently asked this question Agree or disagree? God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. 67% of people in the U.S. agree. So if you want to be a centrist, you want to fit in with the culture around you, you better agree. But if you want to be a Christian, if you want to believe what the Word of God says, then you better disagree. 58% of evangelicals agree with the statement. It's only 9% less than the culture at large. Okay? So the church is basically at the same point as the world on this. Not a lot of difference. And if you look at young evangelicals, you really see the drift. Evangelicals who are aged 18 to 34, 64% agree that God accepts the worship of all religions, including Islam and Judaism. And you're out of step with evangelicals, especially young evangelicals, if you say otherwise. Are they really evangelicals if they say that? They have the name, but they don't have the identity. Now, I've ruffled enough feathers, might as well go all the way this morning. Billy Graham said a lot of good things, a lot of great preaching. I have a lot of respect for the ministry of Billy Graham. However, he did have a tragic interview with a heretic, Robert Schuller, towards the end of his ministry. In May of 1997, he was asked by Robert Schuller about the church, the future of the church, and Billy Graham said a very inclusivist statement. Everybody who loves Christ or knows Christ, whether they are conscious of it or not, they are members of the body of Christ. They might not even know the name of Jesus, but they know in their heart that they need something that they don't have. And they turn to the only light that they have. And I think that they're saved. And they are going to be with us in heaven. Billy Graham agreed with the statement that God accepts the worship of all religions. You don't have to know the name of Jesus. You just use the light that you have. You grow up in a Muslim context and you know you need something and you reach out to God and you'll be accepted by God. That's what he believed at the end of his life. I don't know if he believed that his whole life and hid it or if he just changed at the end. It's hard to say. God knows. And I'm not saying everyone who says something like this is lost. I'm not saying Billy Graham wasn't a Christian. I'm just saying he had progressive tendencies. And there's a lot of Christians who are saved but have a lot of progressive tendencies and it's going to lead to the destruction of the church, just like it led to the destruction of the church having the modernist tendencies, the liberal tendencies in the 20th century. This type of idea, this inclusiveness, leads to an unredeemed membership. All the way back in 1995, R. Kent Hughes wrote a book asking the question, Are Evangelicals Born Again? A man with discernment, a man with knowledge of the word, he looked at evangelicalism 30 years ago and he asked the question, are evangelicals born again? Because it doesn't seem like it. And it hasn't gotten better in the last 30 years. The Chosen is a very popular television show. The producer of that show, the, the main man spearheading it, Dallas Jenkins, 
He allows his personal relationships with Mormons and Catholics to color his view on what a Christian is and what orthodoxy is. I'm not saying Dallas Jenkins is lost, but I'm saying he's inclusive. And he is a part of this, this movement towards inclusive Christianity. You are not a true friend to a Catholic or a Mormon by telling them that they're saved and they're going to heaven. Because they're not. And a true friend will tell someone out of love, I don't want you to be lost. You've got to reject this heresy and embrace the truth. But we allow our experiences to guide us instead of doctrine. And Dallas Jenkins' experience of his fellowship with these Mormons says, well, it feels like they're worshiping the same Jesus. It feels like they love the same God. They seem like Christians in my experience. Are we guided by experience or are we guided by the Word of God? That's the difference between being a biblical Christian and being a progressive Christian. The Scripture says in John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You can't come to the Father through Judaism. You can't come to the Father through Islam. You have to come through Jesus. It has to be the gospel is preached and you put your faith in the gospel. You repent and you are baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to tell the whole world that your faith is not in Islam, that your faith is not in Mormonism, but that your faith is in the gospel of the New Testament. Baptism doesn't save you, but it sure is a good way of letting people know what you believe. And if you're not willing to be baptized, why? The apostles preached the same exclusive message. They said there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I think it's time for us to get rid of the definition for narrow-mindedness that has been implanted in us through our secular culture. And it's time we get back to a common-sense definition of narrow-mindedness, which Machen put in his book. I didn't have time to share this quote with you last time, but you're getting it here. Narrowness does not consist in definite devotion to certain convictions or definite rejection of others. Get that in your mind. You're not narrow-minded if you have devotion to certain convictions and if you reject others. That's not narrow-mindedness. The world has told you from the time you were an infant, that's narrow-minded. It's not. What is narrow-minded? Machen knew. The narrow man is the man who rejects the other man's convictions without first endeavoring to understand them. The man who makes no effort to look at things from the other man's point of view. That we critique Islam because we've studied it and we understand it and we know that it's contrary to the Bible. That is not narrow-mindedness. That is knowing the truth and rejecting what is falsehood. So it's man-centered and it's inclusive and it's anti-Paul. Anti-Paul. See, woke church is the accommodation of Christianity to postmodernist and neo-Marxist ethics. And what they do, they go to the postmodernist church and they say, you've got to love your neighbor. And love your neighbor is defined by social justice. And social justice is defined by neo-Marxism. And so they co-opt the command of Jesus Christ. They take the general command and they infuse it with all the specifics of their culture. And so they sound Christian. They've got a Christian veneer of love your neighbor. But they're not Christian. They're Marxist. 
They're diametrically opposed to Christianity with all of their ethics. This is what progressive preachers do. Be on your guard of the general command informed with worldly ethics, not biblical ethics. Ethics is the battleground of the postmodernist controversy. Gay Christianity, feminist Christianity, these are the battlegrounds. This is where the dragon is attacking. If you don't stand where you're being attacked, you're giving up the battle. Paul was attacked theologically by the liberals in the 20th century. They didn't like the doctrine of Paul. Paul is attacked ethically by the progressive Christians in the 21st century. And we don't want to argue doctrine. We just don't want Pauline ethics. We don't want to have to live our life according to the commands of the Bible. What are some of those commands that are most odious to our culture? Well, how about this one? Let a woman quietly learn with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Well, them's fighting words. And that's what Machen said. The things that people are willing to fight for are usually the things that are most valuable. The enemy wouldn't attack this if it wasn't important. And I'm tired of being ashamed of what the New Testament says. I've made up my mind that I'm not going to be ashamed of any command in the Scripture. Thank you. How about this one? I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. Is that my word? Is that Paul's word? Is that the word of people living 2,000 years ago that didn't understand modern times? Is that just a cultural element in the Bible that is not authoritative for Christians today? Are we progressive Christians or are we biblical Christians? How about this one? The men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. The Bible says that homosexuals shall not inherit the kingdom. Is it loving to tell a homosexual that he can be a Christian and still be a homosexual? The world is anti-Paul in his ethics, just as they were anti-Paul in his doctrine in the 20th century. And you can't look back on 20th century Christians and say, I'm so glad they stood for Paul when the liberals were attacking his doctrine if you're not going to stand with Paul and his ethics in the 21st century. If you're going to sell out Paul the same way they did, then just be honest with it. Like Augustine said, if you're going to pick and choose what you believe, you're not really believing Christ, you're believing yourself. Number four, postmodern Christianity is victim-centered. Remember what Machen said about liberalism in the 20th century. At the root of the modern liberal movement is the loss of the consciousness of sin. Now let's just change that one word. At the root of the postmodernist progressive movement is the loss of the consciousness of sin. And when you have a victim mentality, you have lost your consciousness of sin. The gospel is for perpetrators, not victims. Let me say that. The gospel is for perpetrators, not victims. You are not a victim. You are a perp. 
Sin is brokenness in the progressive church. I'm so tired of hearing of brokenness. Are people broken? Yes, people are broken. But let's not replace hamartiology with victimology. Hamartiology is the doctrine of sin. One of the most essential, foundational doctrines in all of Scripture. And the progressive church has lost consciousness of it. I've been hurt so much. I've been wounded so much. I just need God to heal me. That's the gospel in the progressive church. Christ will heal your hurts and your brokenness. But the gospel, according to the New Testament, is Christ will take away your sins. You've broken God's law. You are justly condemned by the holy God. And that Jesus Christ, he bore your sins on the cross so that you can be free forever from that guilt, from that shame, from that destruction that you brought upon yourself. That he didn't want you to die. And he has saved your eternal soul. And when people are man-centered and they're inclusive and they're anti-Paul and they're victim-focused, it's not surprised then that what you end up with is people deconstructing their faith. Joshua Harris, an evangelical writer who wrote one of the most popular books on Christian dating called I Kissed Dating Goodbye. He kissed his wife goodbye and he kissed his faith goodbye. He deconstructed his faith. Gungor, a musical group that I appreciated, deconstructed and reconstructed their faith in an extremely progressive manner. Rhett and Link, who are famous YouTubers, very funny. They used to be staff members for Campus Crusade. In February of 2020, they publicly deconstructed their faith on YouTube. This is a recipe for disaster. We've got to get back to the Word. So what do you do? You come back next week, and I'll give you the solutions. I don't want to just talk about problems. I want to talk about solutions. And so the solutions, in brief, read your Bible for ethical instruction, not just for a religious experience. Okay? You read your Bible because you want to know what right is and what wrong is, and you agree with God about what right and wrong is. And you limit your exposure to the world's ethics. The world is trying over time to change your ethics. They don't care about your doctrine. They care about what you think is right and wrong, and they want you to agree with them. Limit your exposure to their twisted thinking. We'll go into more of this next time. Finally, love God more than your family. A lot of compromise happens in the church because I've got a child who's homosexual. And so homosexuality can't be a damning sin because I don't want my child to be lost. We'll talk more about that next week also with some of these verses that I'm flying past. I'll teach you how to evangelize. I'll teach you how to build the church. I'll teach you how to build your family. All from God's word rebuilding our faith in a world of deconstruction. That's what I was building up to this morning. We'll get there next week.